You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Hello, welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles. I'm Charles Hackney, Associate Professor of Psychology at Briarcrest College and Seminary in Cairnport, Saskatchewan. With me today is Mark McMinn. Dr. McMinn is a clinical psychologist who helped launch the PsyD program at Wheaton College, former president of APA's Division 36, Society for the Psychology of Religion and Spirituality, uh, and he has taught at George Fox University for many years, currently serving as professor and director of faith integration in the Graduate Department of Clinical Psychology. So, Dr. McMinn, how are things going for you over in Oregon? Well, wonderful. We're enjoying a great autumn here. Uh, we get to the Oregon rain, but it's, uh, it's part of the wonderful experience of living here. It is. Uh, so I hadn't told you about this. I'm actually a George Fox alumnus. Oh, is that right? Yeah, wow. class of 96. Well, wonderful. I Again, I, I, I was pretty sure that uh, I had recognized your names in various ways, including some of your writing, and that makes a lot of sense to me, the George Fox part, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so were you at uh, George Fox at the same time that uh, Clark Campbell uh, was there? I was. Yeah. Clark has been a dear friend of mine for years, and actually I left in 93 and came back in 2006, because I started my career at George Fox in the mid-1980s. There we go. So we just missed each other. We did. Yeah, so I, I did uh, my uh, my first year at the University of Alaska Anchorage and then transferred in at uh, uh, to George Fox uh, in 93. Okay. So, yeah, we did just miss each other then. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the reason I picked George Fox is that Mark Campbell uh, was my pastor in Anchorage. Oh, Clark's brother, yes. Yeah. yeah. Right, I, Mark's a great guy, yeah. So, so, so yeah, so we've got... Well, some connection and memory lane stuff going. <laughs> Small world. So, yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, in fact, I'm a uh, I'm a social and personality psychologist, and it was uh, taking courses with uh, Chris Koch and uh, James Foster uh, that uh, got me heading in that direction. No, again, both great guys. Yeah, yeah. they're still at George Fox, and and enjoy working with them. Yeah. Yeah. Ter- Turns out I, I never did get a chance to uh, to study under Clark because uh, he, he was only doing the graduate programs and right. So, yeah, right. so he so he was why I went to George Fox and then never got to study with him. But it was still good experience, very good school. I uh, uh, greatly appreciated and benefited from my education there. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I've, I've enjoyed being a being part of the faculty there. There you go. Yeah. So any listeners who are uh, thinking about possibilities for Christian undergraduate education for themselves or somebody they know, uh, we'll just take a brief moment to say George Fox is what well, George Fox University is a uh, very good, very good school, high quality education, good people, uh, and I had a wonderful experience there. So I might I might add to Charles that we have a, a doctoral program in clinical psychology, which is the one I'm involved in right now. Yes. Uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, whether we're talking about undergraduate studies or graduate studies, uh, George Fox is definitely something for you to, uh, to uh, take a look at, listeners. All right, uh, today we are here to talk about Dr. McMinn's book, The Science of Virtue, Why Positive Psychology Matters to the Church, published this year by, uh, so 2017, by Brazos Press, and uh, a link to the publisher's website uh, will be in the show notes. Uh, in this book... Dr. McMinn argues that there is great potential for a mutually advantageous dialogue between the church and those who engage in the science of virtue. 
Longtime listeners of this podcast may recall that virtue, flourishing, and positive psychology have been featured in some previous episodes, uh, including David Grubbs' recent interview with Dr. Jonathan Pennington on his book, The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing, uh, and in fact, Nathan Gilmore interviewing me way back in episode three uh, on my book, Martial Virtues, uh, involving positive psychology, virtue ethics, and the martial arts. So, for listeners who are not familiar with this movement, though, uh, Dr. McMinn, could you give us a little bit of background on what is meant by positive psychology? Sure, happy to. Uh, in one sense, the, the word goes way back. It, it was a word that was used, I think, initially in the psychology movement by Abraham Maslow in the 1960s or so. But it got more prominent and more important in 1998 when the president then of the American Psychological Association, Martin Seligman, had a, every president of the APA has a presidential initiative sort of saying, let's do something a little different. And Seligman's idea was, we have worked a long, long time looking at what goes wrong with people and how to make it better. And in fact, that's an important part of psychology. But we haven't done as good a job at looking at what goes right with people, what, what human flourishing might look like. And so, uh, very suddenly, there was a lot of interest in positive psychology because of that presidential initiative, including some important books that came out right around then. And I, I should say that some people had been doing research on this even before Seligman's presidency, uh, work especially on forgiveness and happiness and so forth. But when it became a sort of platform for the association, things really seem to, to take a different turn. And in the last two decades, there's just been an enormous surge of interest in topics like wisdom and forgiveness and gratitude and hope, uh, just the, the positive things that make life worth living. So it's been a, an exciting time to be part of this, just to see what's happening. And Charles, I know you write in the topic too, so it'll be kind of a fun interaction as we go through this. and. Uh, talk about this idea of positive psychology. It is, yeah. And I, um, so I, I sort of, I distinctly remember uh, being at George Fox and uh, sitting in uh, one of the classes, I think it, uh, I think it might actually uh, have been uh, Dr. Foster's, uh, one of Dr. Foster's classes, uh, thinking uh, that psychology has done so much stuff looking at uh, people who are not doing well and helping them to uh, suffer less. Wouldn't it be cool if there was psychology that could help people who are already doing okay do even better? And it's going to sort of stopped listening to the lecture for a few minutes. <laughs> well, and that, that kind of went off. And, oh, what would that kind of psychology be? Like? Of course, that, so yeah, that was the 90s. Uh, so, yeah. But that little, that little daydream in a psychology class turned into at least a couple books, and who knows what's what's more for you. So that's it exciting did. to see. Yeah, hey, well, I, plus plus taking uh, uh, some philosophy courses with Phil Smith, um, I, I, I developed an interest in virtue ethics and did an independent study with him on uh, Alasdair MacIntyre and After Virtue. And it was fun. I liked it. It. I, I thought it was really cool. It's, you know, it was an important philosophical work, and uh, but, you know, when, what am I ever going to have a connection to that in psychology? And, right. Yeah, and then uh, positive psychology starts kicking off, and people are actually doing virtue and talking and, and citing McIntyre. And so I'm going, oh, my goodness. It's like well, I was okay. prepared for this. It's wonderful. 
<laughs> that sounds wonderful. Just a couple quick anecdotes there. One is, you know, I, I said that positive psychology goes back to to Abraham Maslow, but of course, if you're looking philosophically at it, it goes much, much further. It goes back at least to Aristotle, which is before the time of of Christ. So it goes back a long, long ways if we're thinking of virtue. And then the other anecdote is when I started writing the book, The Science of Virtue, the first thing I did was to read the McIntyre book you're talking about, After Virtue. And I talked with Phil Smith about this, and he told me that he thinks it's the most important book in moral philosophy in the second half of the 20th century. So it seems like a good starting place for anyone who's interested in looking at virtue to, to think about the philosophical issues involved. It is, and I, I, I recommend this book to my students all the time. Uh, one of the things that I found, I mean, the, is that uh, not only is After Virtue this uh, this this academic game changer in moral philosophy, but it's also readable. Uh, yes. You know, the fir first time I read it, I was an undergraduate uh, psychology major, and I didn't need a PhD in philosophy to understand what McIntyre was saying. I was able to follow his basic argument. So yes, any listeners who are interested in uh, getting into this, uh, After Virtue by Alistair McIntyre is is a great place to start. Agreed. Yep. Now, looking over uh, some of your previous publications, you've spent many years contributing to uh, what has been called the integration literature, uh, looking at the relationship between psychology and Christianity. Uh, so what led you to focus on positive psychology for the uh, focus of this uh, latest project? Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, that's been the main theme of my career is integration of psychology and Christianity. And I remember uh, a very specific experience in 1999 where I was uh, leaving a hospital having done some assessment work with a patient, and I was thinking about how often in my reports I had this particular paragraph about how um, this patient seemed to be incredibly isolated, socially isolated. And I was sort of pondering, what is going on in our society? We have people everywhere. We're constantly interacting with one another. Why are people so isolated? And I, I just had this sort of epiphany in the parking lot of a hospital where I thought, whatever's left in my career, I really want to focus on the relationship between psychology and the church. Because I think the church, in, in addition to the spiritual and moral function that the church plays, it's also a place of incredible connection where people get to know one another and live in some sense of relationship with one another. And I think that's incredibly life-giving and healing in many, in many uh, situations. So really for the last 20, uh, 20 years almost, I have been really focused on integration as related to psychology and the church. And all of my clinical work as a clinical psychologist has been with pastors and church leaders. So it really wasn't as big a turn as it might seem, because when I started this most recent project, which would have been about four or five years ago, it was with uh, the benefit of a, t a grant from the John Templeton Foundation, I was still looking at psychology in the church, but, but the, the shift was looking at positive psychology in the church. So um, it's, it's been a wonderful opportunity. This grant allowed us to fund some dissertations and we looked at how these ideas in positive psychology could be uh, played out in the, in the context of some local churches and we looked at it scientifically, had some great conversations with church leaders. But it really felt very consistent with this sort of larger mission I have, which is putting, um, putting psychology in service of the church. 
Okay. Um, so turning to the content of your book, this uh, sort of leads into one of the main uh, points that you want to make. You, you, you made the point that, uh, that you say the time is right uh, for a partnership between the church and positive psychology. Uh, what is it you think that is you know, right about this time, uh, specifically for positive psychology in the church? Yeah, well, you know, I'm uh, I'm not too too many years. Uh, I'm probably within a decade of the end of my career. I'm, I'm I'm 59 now, so I've been doing this a long time. I started young, so I'm about 35 years in on my career, and I sometimes have to pinch myself to think how much things have changed. When I was in, I was heading to graduate school in 1980. And I had a concerned couple from my church, a couple that I, I dearly loved. I had utmost respect for them. Uh, my wife, Lisa, and I uh, were married young. We've been married 39 years now. Uh, but we went to the church together, and this couple approached us both. And and, and they said, you know, we, we're really concerned. We think if you're going to go study psychology, get a doctoral degree in psychology, it probably means you're going to lose your faith because psychology and Christianity just don't mesh well. So then I show up at this major research university, very first day, and I'm talking with one of my other uh, first-year colleagues, another student who is admitted into this program, telling her a little bit about myself. And she looks at me with this shocked look on her face, and she said, what? You can't be religious and be a scientist. That's not even possible, a social scientist and be religious? No, you can't do that. So here I was from both sides, from the church and from, this, from science, both in both cases being told that I can't do this thing, that's not even possible. And and that's how psychology and the church were getting along back in 1980. <laughs> so that's, I mean, that's a long time ago in one way. That's, you know, in, in my part of the country, that's the same year that Mount St. Helens erupted. So yeah, that goes back a long time. But on the other hand, it's not that long when you think it's, you know, less than four decades ago. And now, when I read the literature, in positive psychology especially, most of the people I read are Christians. I mean, it's just remarkable to me to see how things have changed. The, the church, some churches, of course, are still somewhat opposed to psychology, but there's so much more openness to psychology than there used to be. And, and incredibly, the scientific side is also more open to religion than it used to be. So it's just a fascinating thing to me to see how much things have changed and there's so much more dialogue between faith and science. And I do think that the church really needs to have that dialogue. If put yourself in the spot of a, of a young person who um, is growing up, say, in high school and might be going to the public school and hearing every day that, and, and, and this I don't think happens as much as it used to, but it still can happen, hearing that science is to be trusted and faith is not to be trusted. And then imagine that same person going on a weekend to a church where he or she is hearing, you can trust faith, but you can't trust science. That's a tragic situation because sometime pretty soon that person's going to grow, grow have to, well, they feel like they have to make a choice. Either I'm going to trust science or I'm going to trust faith. And that's just a disaster because we don't have to have that divide. There, there's plenty of room for science and faith to be at the table in conversation. And we just need to get that message out both to the science and to the church. And I think we've made a huge progress on that, but we have more to do. We certainly do. Uh, but 
yeah, I, I yeah occasionally still run into uh, some of the people with uh, the kind of attitude that you're talking about. But yes, there, there does seem to have been uh, a substantial shift over the past several decades. Yeah, and it's just been so delightful to see. It's been a really fun run at, at this career in psychology because things have shifted so much, and it's just been wonderful to watch. Right. So getting into some of the specific points that you make, uh, in the introductory chapter of your book, you say that left to itself, psychology starts to veer towards self-interest and that a Christian approach to flourishing can help to redirect that. Now, it does seem... a little bit odd uh, to sound that note of warning when we've got positive psychologists who are doing research on uh, other centered topics like gratitude, like forgiveness. Uh, so could you explain a bit what you mean by this this warning, this criticism, uh, and what we can do to help uh, correct this trend toward self-interest? Yeah, Charles, that, that's a fantastic question. And even, even the asking of that question reminds me that you've done work in this area. You know about this. And so I, um, I, I love the question. But, but let, me, let me illustrate this. So forgiveness is a good example. There's probably over, I think someone, uh, somewhere I, I saw that there's over 3,000 empirical studies on forgiveness now. This is a topic that's just awesome. taken off in the literature. It is awesome, absolutely. Um, again, early in my career, I remember psychologists saying forgiveness was irresponsible because you, you don't allow people to really explore their pain, uh, which is, of course, not a, not a correct view of forgiveness. Um, but we now know that if you are a forgiving person, what's called trait forgiveness, a sort of forgiveness, an inclination to forgive people when they've hurt you, we know that it's going to help your um, blood pressure, it'll help your cholesterol, you'll have better social relationships. There's just a long list of physical benefits that are, are related to being forgiving. There's even a recent study that shows that people who have forgiven someone recently can jump a little bit higher than other people. I mean, it's fascinating huh. to see the physical effects of forgiveness. Now, I'm gonna come back to forgiveness in a minute, but let me add gratitude, the other one you mentioned, in that mix. Um, in 2003, there was a sort of astonishing study that came out on gratitude. They had college students keep journals on things they're grateful for. And then in another condition, randomly assigned, they had college students keep journals about just the events of life. And then in third condition, sort of the daily hassles of life. And they found all the things you would expect. This is a true experiment, so you can actually infer cause and effect here. They found all the things you'd expect where gratitude made people happier and more optimistic and, and so forth. But, the, but what they, the thing that was really shocking was the people that were doing the gratitude journaling went to the doctor less often and they um, slept better and they woke feeling more refreshed. There's these physical benefits to these things like forgiveness and gratitude. But, but, but hold on a minute, just stop and hear what I'm saying for a minute. I'm saying virtue is good for you, but that has never been the point of virtue. Virtue from a Christian vantage point has always been about loving God and loving neighbor. It's about getting our eyes off of ourselves and onto the other. And what happens in the positive psychology literature is we, we, we see all these benefits to these virtuous behaviors and then this, and, and they show up on the, on the, in the popular media. And before we know it, the focus of the research and the focus of the conversation is about personal benefit. 
So I'm a big fan, for example, of a, th a theologian named L. Gregory Jones, who's written about forgiveness. And his latest, one of his latest books, he's, the title of the book is um, Forgiving as We Have Been Forgiven, which I think is much more like a Christian ethic of forgiveness, is we forgive because God has forgiven us. Right. So yes, yes, it... it uh, it can become kind of self-serving. Look at all these personal benefits I get from being virtuous. But when we say that, we're getting our eyes off the target. We're not really thinking about what virtue's always been about. Yeah, I'm, uh, uh, I'm suddenly put in mind of uh, something that Viktor Frankl uh, said about uh, happiness. Uh, that happiness cannot be pursued as an end to itself. If you try to pursue happiness as an end to itself, it disappears. Happiness has to accrue as a beneficial side effect of pursuing a life worth living. Yes. It's a, it's a butterfly that flies away. So if we're going directly at it, yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. So, yeah, trying to, trying to tell people, uh, be other-centered because it will make you happier. <laughs> yeah. It's a little bit, yeah. Yeah. A little incoherent there. Yeah. Now, uh, the bulk of your book is dedicated to chapters on six specific virtues. So we've got chapters on wisdom, forgiveness, gratitude, humility, hope, and grace. Now, in moral philosophy, and now also in positive psychology, virtue lists abound. Uh, and one of the interesting things uh, that I sometimes get into is trying to look at where these lists come from. What, what makes the list? What doesn't make the list? What's the criteria? So how did you end up with this specific list of, of uh, virtues? <laughs> well, it's another great question, and I wish I had a great answer, but I, but I really don't. <laughs> um, this is a convenience list, and, and I'll tell you how it came about. So I, um, as I mentioned, I was, I was blessed and, and fortunate enough to get this grant with the John Templeton Foundation, uh, a couple colleagues and I at George Fox. And, and what the grant did is it funded five doctoral dissertations, and all we knew at the time of getting the grant is that they would be dissertations on positive psychology as it got sort of played out in church contexts. So then we put out a, a call for small proposals among our doctoral students, both at George Fox and at Wheaton College, where I formerly taught. And so we had a, a, a number of people submitting different ideas, and then we sort of chose the ones that we thought made the best dissertation studies. And it turns out that that list reflects the doctoral dissertations that we ended up funding because those are the things we've actually seen in action in church, church settings. Now, there's, there's a couple exceptions to that. Uh, the forgiveness chapter, how can you write a book about positive psychology and not include forgiveness? Because it's, again, there's 3,000 studies on this and it's just, it's one of the things we know the most about. So we didn't actually have a dissertation about forgiveness, but, but we, we just had to add, have that one there. And then the other one was hope, which was not one of the current studies that we had funded through the Templeton Foundation grant, but hope is a, as a topic that I think as Christians, we just have to put that as a really important topic for us to always put in front of us because we, it, it, you know, the, the world can be a dark place, but Christians always have and always have had hope. So, so we wanted to include that. And I, I did have a dissertation students a, a few years ago do a dissertation on hope. So that seemed like a nice fit too, because it was already a topic I was thinking about. 
So that's really not a very good defense. I have those six <laughs> topics because they just were convenient, and I and I thought they illustrated the whole point of of why positive psychology matters to the church. And, and here's another thing that that occurs to me, and I'm you know I, 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 the the list is what it is, those six things. But sometimes I think we put lists on these. We put virtues on these lists as if they're all separate things, but but what if they're not? What if it's just one thing more than a lot of things? And maybe virtue is a thing, and then there are different faces of that thing, but that virtue is really the list, and virtue is loving God and neighbor from a Christian perspective. And then we do that through forgiveness and, and gratitude and wisdom, and, and, and these are the ways we do the virtue. So, well, uh, so speaking of things on the list, so the uh, the last one, uh, so grace as a virtue. Uh, so yeah, I, I haven't seen it on most of the virtue lists uh, that I've come across. Uh, so uh, why why do you use the term virtue? Why is grace a virtue, and uh, what might a science of grace look like? Yeah, no, a great great question. So. Grace is never, I've never seen it on a virtue list. This is kind of a new deal. And in fact, it was a new thing just about four or five months ago that in an APA journal, a journal published by the American Psychological Association, there was a literature review and a call for the science of grace, that this is this is a new topic. And this is also funded by the John Templeton Foundation, the, the original uh, project that led to that article uh, written by some colleagues of ours, um, wonderful article, wonderful work. So, so let me back up a bit though. So gratitude is the other one that it shows up now because we have 15 or 20 years of research and gratitude that shows all of the incredible benefits. But if you go back to Aristotle, gratitude was not considered a virtue by Aristotle either. And, and the reason is Aristotle and, and, and his understanding of virtues was thinking of uh, the, great, the great giver. The virtuous person is the one that gives to others. So uh, the sexist language aside, there is an essay that is attributed to Aristotle called The Great-Souled Man. But we would probably, well, we definitely would want to think of it as the great-souled person today. But the idea is this is the person who sort of gets eyes off of what you can give me and thinks more about what can I give you. So it's a, it's a, it's a giver, not a receiver. Well, so gratitude turns all that upside down. Gratitude is about noticing the gifts we're receiving and being grateful for them. And in the same way, so is grace about becoming receivers. It's it, the, the, the beginning of the Christian life is about receiving and, and I think to be fair to Aristotle, we need to say that this was all done before the time of Christ. And, you know, Jesus turns lots of things upside down. And I think Jesus turned virtue upside down in some ways, too, because it really, it really is first and foremost about receiving the gift of grace. And if we're unable to do that, we can't really understand anything else about Christian virtue. I, I just was. Um, I just wrote an article for Christianity Today. They they ask if I for the online version. They'd ask if I would write something about generosity, which is another topic in positive psychology, one that I didn't cover in the book, but I did a little research on it. 
And that's another example of a, of a virtue that's about giving. And, and, and it, in a sense, you might say, well, that's the opposite of what I've just been saying, because grace and gratitude are about receiving and generosity is about giving. But in another sense, if you look at it not so linearly, but more of a, more of a cycle, that we, that we receive this grace, we receive grace from God every moment, every day, then our response is to sit gratefully with the gifts we receive, and then our response is to give generously of, out of this place of gratitude, this sort of circle of, of life, this sort of positive spiral they talk about. The, the folks who study gratitude talk about a positive spiral. Then we start to see how the giving and the receiving of virtue is all interconnected. And again, it all starts with this great receiving. It all starts with grace. So yeah, that's been a real interest of mine. I feel like I've spent my whole career staring at grace. I don't understand it very well yet, but I've written several books about uh, grace, and, and, and uh, it's just the thing that fascinates me the most about being a Christian is to try to lean into and understand this idea of grace. Yeah, some good points there. So yeah, looking at this uh, kind of shift in perspective, yeah, Aristotle's uh, Megalosuchus, the, the, the great-souled man, would be a, a generous person, but the the reason for being generous is that uh, this person is concerned with his own glory and his own status. <laughs> and so um, generosity becomes a way of displaying uh, his greatness and wealth and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, so it... it looked at from that perspective, it becomes shameful to be on the receiving end because that makes the person lesser than the giver. And we, we all kind of, we, we know that, right? Because like, just in a very natural sense, if someone shows up at your doorstep with a Christmas gift that you weren't expecting and you don't have anything to give back to the other person, there can be that sense of, of shame. Like, I somehow I don't deserve this and this is bad and I, I should be able to reciprocate. Well, that is the essence of Christianity. That's Christian grace right there, right? We can never give back what we've received. And there can be a shame to that, but that's not what Christ calls us to. It's more of a, of a, of a sense of, of a deep gratitude for that gift. Yeah, and then we get uh, the celebrities and wealthy high-status people who uh, will give generously to various causes and organizations. Uh, but only if they get to have the ceremony where they stand on the stage and have the big, dumb, oversized check, and there's people <laughs> for them, and they get their name in the paper and all that sort of stuff, yes. Yeah, yeah, and and then one thinks of the Sermon on the Mount, where when we, we give, we should do it quietly and give our alms quietly and don't, don't blow the trumpets, you know, just, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah and this idea of, a, a grace-centered positive psychology. I mean, this is that's also some that that would turn uh, most of the stuff on in uh, like our, our reference volume, the character strengths and virtues. It would turn that on its head. Absolutely. Since uh, in the I mean the the standard approach uh, um, among our positive psychology peers is that virtue is something that we achieve through our own effort. Mm-hmm. So it, and. It's the the kind of more classically Aristotelian the idea of uh, you know um, virtuous habits and we establish a habit of uh, 
uh, of being wise or being just or being self-controlled. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Roy Baumeister and the self-regulation research. So, uh, you know, you, you engage in small acts of self-control and then you become more self-controlled uh, and then take a look at you. You're so awesome because look how, you know, how strong your self-regulatory capacity is. But these are things that are achieved uh, through our own self-directed efforts. Right. And, oh, go ahead. And, and, and as Christians, we're told that self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Right. That's not something we achieve. It's something we are given. I mean, our, our responsible participation is involved. But sanctification is a, a work of the Holy Spirit. Yes, and I know I know this is this is so good because this is some of the things that you've been working on too, Charles. And I think from from a Christian perspective, we have to stand appreciatively and look at what's happening with positive psychology, but also somewhat critically. And and in many ways, it goes back to where we started this interview, talking about Alistair McIntyre, who essentially argued that what we've lost in our contemporary cultural context is the ability to understand. This idea of teleology, that that, that we are growing, that, that the, the idea of growing into the fullness of what it means to be a flourishing, full human being. And instead, it's way easier to think about, like you say, about habits or, or um, sort of reinforcement patterns and not to think about this bigger picture of transformation of who we're growing into becoming, which is more of a Christian view, I think. Yes. Uh, yeah, I've... Uh had my own uh, thoughts influenced lately um, by, oh, oh, come on, brain, make this work. <coughs> uh, oh, oh, I'm blanking on the author's name. I'm, I'm feeling, feeling really dumb at the moment. Uh, <laughs> after you believe. Oh, I can't help you with this. Um, okay, so, yeah, uh, so just letting you know, listeners, about two seconds after we finish this, I'm going to remember uh, who wrote this. Um Anyway, uh, having this teleological approach to flourishing, the idea, the... Oh, this is, um, let me interrupt. This is N.T. Wright. Thank you! Yes. Oh! Yes. Oh, brain! <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yes. I mean, I've, I've been citing N.T. Wright in some of my work, and I'm just doing, and, and I just couldn't make it fall out of my lobes. Yeah, okay. Okay, thank you. Yeah. I hate when that happens. I especially hate when I'm recorded having that happen. <laughs> well... Okay. <laughs> But yes, N.T. writes uh, after you believe. So uh, the idea that as Christians, uh, the telos of our flourishing, the goal, the end point that we strive toward is not our own. It's not our own. It's that we are being shaped uh, to, to, uh, to serve as a royal priesthood. We are shaped for service to God, uh, for service to the world, for service to others. Mm. Uh, and uh, then we also have an, a, sort of an eschatological aspect of this, that true flourishing is something that uh, we can anticipate and partially participate in right now, but is ultimately something that uh, we are never fully going to achieve mm. uh, at this time. Well, so the problem with this interview is you just made my reading list longer. That sounds like a, a <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a really important book, actually. Yeah. Uh, I find it is, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you know, get sort of steering into some of the uh, possible criticisms. We've already touched on a couple things along these lines. Uh, toward the end of the book, uh, you propose a partnership between the church and positive psychology. Uh, so quoting here, uh, promoting a new understanding of the good life 
in contemporary society, one that for focuses more on virtue than pleasure, more on being good uh, than on feeling good. Uh, when, when I read that, I let out with a hearty uh, wall-shaking amen. Um, but also when I read that section, I immediately thought about uh, how there could be some obstacles to this agenda, and the obstacles could be some of certain po prominent positive psychologists, the ones who are currently in charge, uh, could be a difficulty. Uh, I thought about Martin Seligman uh, in his 2002 book, Authentic Happiness. He uh, tries to talk about the good life, and he says that the good life consists of the subjective feelings of gratification that one gets from using one's signature strengths. Uh, and he's, he's kind of our front man. He's kind of uh, our leader uh, in the positive psychology movement. Uh, and then we've got Ed Diener, who's kind of the, uh, the, the, the grandpa of uh, the movement. He's been doing subjective well-being research uh, for a long time. So he's, he was one of these people that you mentioned who was doing positive psychology before there was a positive psychology movement. Uh, and Dean, we've got Ed Diener's emphasis on the centrality of subjective well-being to the good life. So, you know, the good life consists of, um, you know, habitually experiencing uh, large amounts of positive emotion, lot, not so much amounts of negative emotion, and subjectively evaluating one's life as a good one. So from your perspective, uh, how much of an uphill struggle do you think your agenda presents us? And given the influence that leaders such as Seligman and Diener wield uh, in the movement, uh, are we just going to have to wait for a you know, second generation of positive psychologists to come up uh, to see this agenda come about? Uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing to ponder. I, I certainly have tremendous respect for the scientists who have led this movement. And, and while I don't agree with all of their, um, their conclusions or even the sort of uh, pre presuppositions they begin with, I, I really have a lot of respect for what they've done in terms of shifting the tone of psychology. But, but I, and second generation, maybe, I, I don't know, I, I think it might be more, here's a different metaphor. I, I think those of us who have been interested in religion in, and who are psychologists, We've always been on the margins. We're, we're not on the margins as much as what I described back, you know, 35 years ago when I entered the profession. And, and, and yet still, we're not in the center. We're not in the, in the very central part of the focus for what's going on in psychology. So maybe we just need to get comfortable. Uh, and maybe, maybe that's exactly the best place for us is to live a bit on the margins. And I know you're working on a, on a book in this area too, Charles. And, and, you know, as people like you and, and me and others start writing about positive psychology, but more from an explicitly Christian perspective, maybe we fill in the margins a little bit. Maybe we start seeing that there's this other way of looking at the point of positive psychology. So I'm sort of okay calling for a provocative partnership, knowing that we'll probably get criticized from both sides as Christian psychologists always have. We'll get criticized from the mainstream psychologists for being too religious, and we'll get criticized from some in the church for being not religious enough. But I think what we're doing there is we're filling in those margins, and that's, that's I think, an important thing. Um, at the same time, I, I do want to say I think that there are some parts of the field of psychology that might be inching toward a different view of virtue, at, at least, and, and maybe not a Christian view, but at least 
It's one that I respect a little more. I mean, I've been very intrigued these days by something called acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT. Uh, there's three people that founded this. The one that has sort of is most associated with it now is Stephen Hayes. And as far as I know, Hayes is not a religious person. He certainly studied religion and he, he understands religion. But he is the guy that has, in, in the psychotherapy office, has really moved us away from this sort of short-sighted view of happiness and focused more on eudaimonia, um, what the Greeks called this sort of idea of a, of a, a full-bodied virtue, a happiness that comes out of living virtuously, instead of more of a hedonistic uh, view of virtue that's make, what makes me happy now. And, and we're seeing that in this sort of contemporary psychotherapy theory that's not religious, but we're starting to see this sort of deeper look at happiness and what what is good and not just what feels good. So so I'm I'm encouraged by what I'm seeing, but I do think we'll probably always be at the margins in, in this view of virtue. Okay. Yeah, I've uh, recently come across uh, acceptance and commitment therapy myself and some of the teaching that I've been doing, and I've been been, I've been very impressed with uh, some of their attitudes uh, toward, uh, you know, sort of accepting that, you know, unpleasant things are just going to happen. Right. So we, we shouldn't be surprised when we suffer. That's yeah. just life. That's what humans do. Exactly. Break, you know, yeah. So you feel anxious about something? Uh, you know, you're... Um, um, my, my my wife Lisa is a, a mushroom hunter, and, and we were talking yesterday about this because she says sometimes you know she'll be out in the woods hunting these chanterelles and she feels a little anxious. And and she was helping me understand that as a woman that would be more likely than it would for a man to feel some anxiety about another car pulling up or something. And and of course you know I looked at that and I said, well absolutely that makes sense. That's her brain working just the way a brain should work. And that's part of ACT, uh, acceptance and commitment therapy, really understanding that the emotions we have are not things to be avoided, but just things to be accepted and understood. And then, and then from that point, then we figure out how do we live into these values that we, that we hold uh, important to us. Yeah, and I have seen some, uh, some work being done lately by some positive psychologists on uh, the upside of some of the uh, some of the negative emotions, mm -hmm. right? And how, how how flourishing is not about eliminating sadness and guilt and grief and things like that, but about how to do them well, how to do them right. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's an that's an important shift in positive psychology. I, I think the field will continue to evolve, and I think it's encouragement to me to see how many Christians are involved in this work. And, and I think that over time, you know, we, we will have an influence. I certainly hope so. And I'm, yeah, I'm. I find myself encouraged by uh, your talk about being comfortable in the margins and filling in the margins. Don't necessarily need the field to to, to be reshaped by us. Just that we be faithful where we are. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a beautiful word. And and, and just be faithful where we are. I, that, I love that. That's that's what we need to be. Okay, uh, looks like we're starting to move in the direction of the hour mark, so uh, start yep. uh, heading toward wrapping this up. So uh, what's next on uh, your docket? Uh, any upcoming projects that you'd like us to know about? 
Well, I, I have several projects. It seems like that's always, you know, you know how academic life is, Charles. It seems like there's always projects. The, the, one, the one I'm really excited about, well, there's several I'm excited about, but one is uh, you mentioned grace earlier, and um, that we're, we're starting to sort of do some research and looking at what people's experience of grace is like. So. Uh, I've, I've been real sort of excited about this. Just yesterday, I was, we, we've got a couple hundred uh, brief interviews with people about their experience of grace, and I'm just starting to look over the data yesterday, and uh, there's some rich, rich information in terms of how people experience grace. I'm, uh, I'm also on a grant project where we're looking at spiritual formation in seminarians, and so that'll be a, a fun project to, to see how that goes. And then another uh, grant project on we're doing a national survey. I'm working with uh, Josh Hook at University of North Texas and Don Davis at Georgia State, and we're looking at how pastors perceive mental health issues, uh, which is you know something that we need a current look at because back when it was done before, back in the 1980s and 90s, things didn't look very friendly. But I think a lot's changed, and so we're we're taking a look at that through uh, working with the Barna organization for a national survey on that. And then the other thing is my wife and I live on this little farm in Oregon, and that, I mean, what's next on my docket is part to be really a good uh, strawberry grower and, and, and blueberry grower and to learn how to grow apples really well. And, and we're just having a blast um, being outdoors a lot and learning how to grow fruit. It's been great fun. Oh, now you got me jealous. We're dealing with uh, snowstorms up here. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Well, but yeah, those sound good. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing how those uh, how those turn out. Yeah. All right. Well, I look forward to seeing your book on positive psychology. Positive psychology, Charles. I, I really do think that the more we get Christians involved in this, the the more it's going to refine our focus. Yeah. Uh, still plugging away on the first draft of the manuscript. Hopefully, it won't be too long before uh, I'm able to get that uh, put put together and submitted. Wonderful. There you go. That's been good talking with you, uh, Mark. Yes, you as well. Thanks for the chance to talk with you and your listeners, Charles. There you go. All right. I've been speaking with Mark McMinn, and the book is The Science of Virtue, Why Positive Psychology Matters to the Church. So click on the link in our show notes, buy a copy of the book, read the book, join the conversation. Comments can be posted on our website, christianhumanist.org. Find us on Facebook uh, under Christian Humanist Podcast. The Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Feel free to give us good reviews at iTunes. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I am Charles Hackney, wishing you all well on this day.